Hi, this is Ivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. I had the great pleasure of talking to Congresswoman Madeleine Dean and her son, Harry Cunane, about their jointly authored book called Under Our Roof, A Son's Battle for Recovery, A Mother's Battle for Her Son. Madeleine is the Congresswoman for the 4th District of Pennsylvania, suburban Philadelphia, a member of the House Judiciary and House Financial Services Committees, and Vice Chair of the Bipartisan Women's Caucus. From 2012 to 2018, she served in the Pennsylvania House. From 2001 to 2011, she taught writing at LaSalle University, and she has contributed to Newsweek, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Philadelphia Daily News, and other regional publications. She and her husband, PJ Cunane, live in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, and have three sons, two daughter-in-law, and three grandchildren. Harry Cunane has been an active member of the addiction recovery community since his recovery began more than seven years ago, participating in a 12-step program, volunteering at rehabs and jails around Philadelphia to spread a message of hope. He now works as a resource director for the same treatment center where he originally sought help for his own addiction. He lives in Audubon, New Jersey with his wife, Juliet, his daughter, Aubrey, and his son, Sawyer. Madeleine and Harry are the authors of the children's book, You Are Always Loved, in addition to Under Our Roof. Welcome, Madeleine and Harry, to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books when we're going to discuss Under Our Roof, A Son's Battle for Recovery, A Mother's Battle for Her Son, your amazing book. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting us. From the very first page of this book, I was like, trying to push my kids aside to read it without interruption. I'm like, this is so intense. This is so good. Like edge of my seat kind of writing. And I love how the two of you go back and forth. Tell me about, well, first of all, tell me about your decision to write this book. And second of all, your decision in the format of it and to write it jointly like this. Harry, you, you, why don't you roll with this? So first of all, writing the book was not our idea. My older brother is a writer. You know, he had published a book after his time in the Obama administration and his agent came to him and said, Hey, would you like to do another book? And he said, no, but you know, my brother and my mom might. So that's sort of where it all started, but to really, you know, the sense of how we decided to do it in terms of dual voices for us, I think was such an important aspect of it. I know my mom is you know, very, she was particular on the fonts had to be different to sort of show our different voices. But what we did is we really wrote it completely separately. (laughs) So we came up with an outline of key events and what we wanted to to write on. And we didn't read what each other were writing. So we didn't want to skew our memory or change our perception to try to match with what the other, how the other experienced it. And then our editors, of course, did a wonderful job of help really sewing it back together. But, you know, for us, it was really a very sort of individual process when we first went through the first pass of it. And I'll add to that, we we didn't think of this on our own. So when Pat and his agent came to us, I was pretty surprised. And, and I thought, this is a daunting project. But then I thought, wait a second, I have to write only half. 
So maybe I can get this done, you know, about being busy moms. But we were certain that we wanted to do a couple of things. Make sure by way of the font to signal two different voices. Literally, we chose a serif font for me and a more masculine non-serif font for him to signal voice and age and gender and, and roles. And I think the other thing that we did was intentionally not read each other. So you might imagine, and maybe you wouldn't, but when I read some of his chapters, there was so much in there I had no idea about. So it was kind of stunning. And, and as Harry said, the editors did a really nice job of, of weaving our two stories together. What was that like, learning about some of the stuff? That must have been rough. I mean, this, there's a lot in here. <laughs> Sorry, Harry. It's like, if you were my son yeah. and I was reading this, I don't know, that would be a tough, that would be a tough, you know, afternoon on the couch. Oh, it, it's no longer, I don't believe it's any longer chapter five, but I kept saying to Harry and to Pat, I can't get through chapter five. It was originally chapter five that was really just overwhelming to me in its depths and sorrow of addiction. And so I kept saying, I can't even get through chapter five. In any event, we've gotten through it. And I think we've learned a lot along the way. And what about you, Harry? Were there parts you were surprised to hear from your mom's point of view? There definitely were. You know, I think what was interesting was, you know, when we started this process, you know, I guess two years ago at this point, I had been in recovery for six years and my mom and I's relationship had grown and, you know, we had already had a wonderful relationship. But sort of once you get a little bit of distance from kind of the active addiction portion of it, a lot of these things you just don't talk about. Maybe you don't need to talk about, you don't need to go into the details. It's so there was so much there that she didn't know. And, you know, a lot of people around me didn't know. From my side, what was so valuable was I always had these assumptions of how, you know, how I had hurt her, how I had impacted the entire family, but never really knew because I was fortunate when I got into recovery, my family was incredibly supportive. So they didn't hold a lot of these things over me. I knew there was pain. I knew that I had caused it but I didn't know exactly what it looked like. So it was very interesting to go back and read. And, you know, the one thing with my mom wanted to hire a private investigator to follow me. Like I had no idea that these things were going on. I think I thought I had it a little bit more hidden than I did, which turned out not to be the case. Melanie, there were a lot of times where I found you sort of, wondering, should you have known? Or was this a sign? Or why did you miss this? Or I felt like you were, you know, maybe not completely beating yourself up, but just like, like, how could you have missed it? Like, tell me about that. And looking back, I mean, I can see the pain. It's still painful, right? All of what happened. I mean, anytime a child is in pain in any way, it's just almost unbearable for the parent. So tell me, tell me a little bit about how you feel the mothering piece of it was and like looking back and how you and I don't know, just talk about that. <laughs> well, a couple of things. I, I knew there was something desperately wrong in our house. I, I likened it to a fire in the walls of the house. And, and I felt like I was the only one who knew it. There's something desperately wrong going on here. But you see maybe in our writing that it's also met with a bit of denial. Mm -hmm. All right. You know, is this just normal experimentation? A kid being a teenager and being a jerk to his mother and the fighting and all of that. So in, in one sense, and particularly because of how Harry was changing from the lively, buoyant young boy that he was to something becoming flatter and sicker and so unproductive and flatter, there was a darkness to his bright eyes. 
but you know, this is something that comes on slowly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you, if you've ever been around someone who is sick, when you see them before they were sick to when they're desperately sick, you can't believe the difference. But if you're living it every day, just little pieces of him seem to be ebbing away. And I kept saying, it's gotta be drugs. So you can see I struggled. I ineptly drug tested him and tried this. Oh my goodness, just a, just absolute nitwit of a mother trying to figure out what was going on. But also I didn't understand, I, I thought I understood addiction as a disease and, and was it drugs and was he addicted, but I didn't really understand at all until we got into treatment recovery. And literally I learned so much more about the depths of addiction because of Harry's honest writing. I had some vanilla view of abuse of drugs and what it might be. You can see through this story and the honesty with which Harry tells it, that addiction is a very ugly place to have to go. Yes. I was delighted to see him looking so cleaned up and like in a blazer and everything. I'm like, oh, thank God. You know, so I like reading this book. Oh, he's all about the look now. I'm telling you. <laughs> healthy well and he's silent well but you were so you were so sneaky i mean the amount of times you sneaked out of the house and like took the car and like i'm i'm like i think i need to put like some sort of alarm system in place before my kids like start doing this stuff and even i couldn't believe when you were in the er with that horrible allergic reaction and you hadn't told the allergist that you were taking percocet and whatever else at the time And so you like went into anaphylactic shock and multiple epinephrine shots didn't do the trick. And you went to the hospital and you actually took the blood that they took out of you so you could hide it. Unbelievable. (laughs) I just couldn't believe it. Like the, the extent to which you would go to hide what was going on. Tell me a little more about that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just summed up in the desperation of keeping that secret and hiding it and you know, in hindsight now into recovery, it's almost seemed silly, you know, how terrified I was to expose what was really going on. And I think that's, for me, a huge part of the stigma around this. I didn't view it as a disease. I didn't view it as anything other than I knew what was right and wrong. And I knew I was incapable of making the right decision, especially consistently. So I just looked at myself towards the end as this horrible, horrible person, you know, and and the shame without any of it coming from outside, the shame that I felt was so intense that I was willing to risk anything, you know, stealing the blood and, you know, shattering and trying to hide the vials of blood so they couldn't, you know, test me. You know, everything that I did was a defense mechanism to protect my secret. But I think, you know, it just, and that's part of why I wanted to get this out there because in hindsight, it's clear to see, but at that moment, you know, the stigma and the shame and all of the things that go around this topic really just paralyzed me, you know? And and the last thing, you know, I'll say is when I was in treatment and I wrote it in the book, but it was just such a powerful moment and such a simple statement of, you know, when, Father Bill, who was a priest at, you know, care and treatment centers where I went, just told me, you know, Harry, you're not a bad person trying to be good. You're a sick person trying to get well. And that just, you know, that little thing just flipped my perspective on what I was dealing with because I had no sense of that before. I didn't know about the vials until he wrote that in that chapter. I was so desperate to get to the answer. I really thought he fought me about going to the hospital, but it was darn scary. So I thought, 
I've got them. This will be the ultimate drug test. And of course, it, it was concealed yet again. I feel like there's such a history in your family now, Madeline, from what you wrote about your mother and how amazingly giving the people in your family are. Because when your dad was sick and ended up, I'm so sorry, passing away, and your mom was stuck across the country taking care of one of your siblings, she said something that I couldn't believe that when she, and she really obviously wanted to be there when her husband passed away. But she said, maybe it was meant to be that I wasn't there. If I had been there, I would have taken too much of his time. Instead, he got to spend more time with all of you. I mean, what a selfless comment that is. I, I just, that just really stuck with me. Well, and that tells you everything you need to know about my mom. She was an only child who went on to have seven children in part as a gift to her own mother who wanted more children, my, for whom I'm named, Madeline Eaton. And my mother was just like that. When we dealt with my grandmother who mourned the loss of her husband desperately, daily. And so when my father died so suddenly, I worried, oh my gosh, will mommy slip into that same sadness? And instead that was her reaction. The generosity of spirit, I couldn't believe it. And she, she said that immediately when we met her. She said, maybe that was meant to be. You all got more time with them. Wow. And your generosity of spirit and how you took everybody into your home and all the people you've grown up with from your niece to your uncle and Wally, like all your house is like, you know, like a Grand Central Station in a way. I'm wondering now, like what, what's the home life like now? Are you living by yourself? What is it like? We're still trying to adjust. <laughs> we, you should have seen our house on trash day that trash cans lined up like we had a, a real group home going on there. But I love that. I, I, worried sometimes that maybe it was a little too much and was I sapping any of the time from the children but I thought we're here we have all this we should share it now we just sold our our family home at the big house that we lived in and where all of this took place to downsize because it was just PJ and me and sometimes it was just me and sometimes it was just PJ so we've downsized at least our main house we bought a, a condo and I have an apartment in DC where I'm by myself. It's a very different world, but we have a, a place in Cape May that we all come to. So that's our new, not new, that is our, our the place that is a magnet for all of the kids and, and now the grandkids. Which hopefully has better plumbing than the place you got at the shore that summer, which sounded horrific. Oh my gosh. Slightly better accommodations. Oh, yeah. Good. <laughs> oh my gosh. The thing about your addiction, Harry, which I'm sure is true of so many is that you really communicated in the book your desire to stop at many times and yet the complete inability to do so, especially when your girlfriend gets pregnant. Tell me about that experience and how when you knew you were going to be a dad, what that did to your desire to get sober again. So I'm glad you picked up on that because I think, you know, there's often an impression that, you know, this is what they want to do. And, you know, for somebody who's caught up in it. So when I found out I was going to be a father, I was 20 or 21 years old. No, I was 20 years old and completely caught up in addiction. My life was a complete disaster. I was, you know, failing at school and working in a warehouse and nothing was going well, but I was immediately filled with this sense of hope because naively, I believed that was, you know, the willpower, that was it. I knew the kind of father I wanted to be. And I just believed that I was going to do it. So for me, it was such a hopeful moment. But as you know, as you see, it wasn't 
the cure that I thought it might be. And, and I really, really struggled afterwards. And that struggling after was just the most hopeless and sort of soul crushing experience that I, I could have imagined because every day, you know, I knew before it was a problem, but every day after she was born, just every decision I made was counterproductive to the person I wanted to be, the, the person I knew I could and should be. And it just brought me to a point where I believe there was nothing that could pull me out of this, that this was my life and I was going to die this way. Oh, it's like soul crushing. Uh, what was that period of time like for you? I know you were so upset, Madeline, when you heard the news about becoming a grandmother at this point when Harry was only 20 and kind of a mess in his own life. And now he was bringing a baby into the world. Like, tell me about that inflection point. Well, it was a very dark moment. We were struggling with somebody who was 20, who seemed arrested in his own maturity and development some years back, struggling to be successful, struggling to succeed, whether it was in high school or college, struggling to stay with his work, sickly. And I, I just thought so sad that here his, his would-be childhood was coming to a very abrupt end. I didn't think he was taking good care of himself and clearly he wasn't able to at that point. So it was just dark that he would now face becoming a father. I've had other mothers who had a son or daughter with a, an unexpected pregnancy and that same kind of darkness comes over you, the, the, the same feeling. I have to tell you how beautifully it's lifted by a baby on her way. So wow. for that time, it was I was very blue but obviously the, the new life and the gift of our, our granddaughter, Aubrey, changed that dramatically. And meanwhile, you weren't just at home being a mom trying to help her son. You were also becoming a congresswoman <laughs> along the way and, and getting involved in politics in all sorts of different ways and going door to door. I mean, there was all this, you had a whole separate thing going on, which is like giving back to the world at large. Tell me about the intersection of, of what you were trying to do at home versus in the bigger political sphere. And even now. Well, you know, in those days, uh, you know, I was, um, I had been teaching. I was a lawyer as a younger woman. Then I had the chance to teach at LaSalle University for 10 years, which worked really well with a balance of family life. And I really loved that. And, and it helped me work with young people finding their, their way and their words but I always knew I had an itch in me from the time I got started in politics at 18, literally ran for office for this little position called committee woman. And I knew someday I- And you, and you won. And I won. I took out an incumbent. Was <laughs> but I literally in my 30s and 40s, I thought about getting into politics, running for office, but thought, oh, that'll rob the kids. They're, we don't get to do this childhood twice. And it'll. we're so busy as it is, that would rob them. And so, but I- I got itchy. I turned 50. Maybe I'm a late bloomer and had the chance to go to school first, take a couple courses at Penn, and then was asked to run for township commissioner. So all of this is going on as I'm struggling with this newness of running for office and then serving. And, you know, when you have a problem in your house, the problem can become all consuming. So it was difficult to navigate the, those two worlds. But somehow we muddled through and we did it. Wow. If you could go back and tell yourself while you were going through this, for anybody who is going through this, any moms who have a child who they suspect is struggling in some way or they know to be fighting addiction or 
any of that? Like, what would you say to that mom or dad? Yeah, the, the reason we wrote this book was we thought maybe our story could help somebody else. That if we reveal and be honest about, you know, obviously in this book, you see honestly the mistakes I made, the things I didn't know, the stupidity, the stumbles, and yet the, a mother's desperation to find out what's going wrong with her beautiful son. So I would say reach out to others, ask for help, bounce this off somebody else. There was a person you saw in the book who, who helped me just by having coffee with me a couple of times and talking to me and saying, you know, your instincts are probably right, Matt. He's lying about it. He's, he's trying to cover it up. He's trying to say maybe it's gambling, maybe it's something else. But your instincts are right. Stay with it. I did homework on where he could get help if I could ever get him to the point of admit, admitting what was going on. But I, I guess I would say to mothers and fathers or loved ones, give yourself a break. It's not easy to try to discover what's going on with somebody else if they're dealing with addiction. But don't give up hope. That's the worst, you know, the words that you're using, whether it was desperation, you know, desperation is a loss of hope. Don't give up hope. There is always hope. That's what I would say. Be self-forgiving and, and don't give up hope. How about you, Harry? What would you, what would you say to parents of people <laughs> or even maybe, I mean, I don't think any kids are listening, but I don't know. What would you say to anybody about your story that might be helpful? No, I mean, you know, the areas where my mom and I have disagreed, this isn't one of them. You know, I think that really there is hope, you know, and even though it often does not feel that way, just sort of a constant reminder of that. And I think the other thing, you know, I've learned both through my experience receiving treatment and also in my current work is there are so many resources out there. There's so many different pathways to recovery. It's not a, you know, one size fits all. It's not, you know, this is what you have to do. Everybody's different. And that's why there's a lot of different resources out there. So find somebody that you trust and talk about it. You know, that can be a friend, a neighbor, a therapist, whatever the case is, start talking about it. You know, it's not as scary as it seems to talk about this because what I found and what we found, you know, in doing this is, you know, although I tried to hide it and, you know, our family didn't talk about it that broadly, this is happening in so many households. Almost everybody knows somebody, you know, might not be in their immediate household, but just about everyone knows someone who is struggling. And I think I found once you kind of strike up a conversation, they may be a little bit more open to sharing their experience with it. You know, so find somebody that you trust and talk to them and just remember there is always, always hope. And just to close, I know you had this beautiful quote at the beginning of the book, which of course now I won't be able to find, but something to the extent that an addiction affects the whole family. Where is it? It was like it brings the whole family down. It's not just about the one person, right? It's about the whole system. So in terms of your whole extended family, and I know how you held your older brother Pat in such high regard, and you can see that, like, I don't know what your relationship is like now. Although if we had like another half an hour, I'd want to talk about that <laughs> because you, you clearly like just thought he was, I don't know, you had such idolized relationship of him and how great that he's the one who now got you guys to write this book. But in terms of family systems, like what can we all do to help families that are struggling? What do you think? Because we all know, as you said, people, but when there are family systems that are, you know, weathering the storm who have that internal fire in the walls and don't quite know what to do, is there anything we can do to help others? My dad flies a lot or, you know, pre 
COVID flu all the time, a little bit less now. But what he has always said, which I think is valuable, you know, when looking at the family system, you know, or looking at the person who's suffering, but the analogy of, you know, when the mask, the oxygen mask falls, secure your mask before assisting others. So I think when there's this, you know, fire within the house, you can't control what the person who has a substance use disorder is doing. You can't fix it. You can't manage it. You can be there and try to, you know, try to offer help and solutions. But what you can do is work on yourself, you know, and try to be able to find some comfort, some peace within yourself. Because if you can't heal, then it's going to just be even harder for the person who is struggling to heal. But if they see you healing, it may give them hope. You know, so I think that's something that's so important is no matter what's going on, the only thing you can control is what you're doing for yourself and self-care. The quote you were thinking of was something my friend Lois used to say all the time. Lois DeVita used to say, a family is like a mobile. And so when one spins out of control, the whole mobile tries to go to compensate. And I saw that in my own family when I was a child growing up. When a brother had was drafted and served in Vietnam, how the whole family sort of suffered and struggled with that. And so what I would say to your audience is that's really true. A family dynamic moves in synchronicity or out of sync together. The outcome for us, I never could have foreseen, which is as Harry was spinning out of control and we were desperately trying to figure out what was going on. Once we figured it out and he said yes to recovery, which is a miracle moment, something he can be extremely proud of, to simply say yes, to be vulnerable and say yes. What happened then I could not have predicted, which was his brothers, and PJ always was going to be there and I was always going to be there, but his brothers, without any judgment, came in and surrounded him and doused him with love and support and a lot of good humor, a lot of ribbing and a lot of good fun. But it actually made us stronger as a family. I think by coming face-to-face with this disease and the reality that it, it could take your life. And for us, it was a very powerful, terrible time to go through. But on the other side of it, I think it made the love bond in our family stronger. That's amazing. Wow. Well, thank you. It's so nice to meet both of you having just read this book, which is so good under our roof. Thank you for sharing your story. It's really powerful and I'm sure it's going to help so many other people. So well done. Thank you. Thank you, Zibby. You have to tell, someday you'll have to tell me about you. I'd like to interview you and you, you putting this podcast together. I think it's very terrific. Oh, thank you. Anytime I'm around. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Me too. All right. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 